All right, it says right here that I'm supposed to say good morning. Good morning. It's nice to be here. My name is Dan Olson. I am one of the elders here at Cedar Home. And Dan Halleck is our pastor. This is actually a Dan-rich environment. There's a lot of Dans around. <laughs> Dan Halleck and his family are on vacation. They're in Wyoming enjoying some time off to be together, to uh, visit family, do all kinds of things. So uh, I get the joy and opportunity of speaking with you this week. Uh, next week, Doug Johnson will be here, a uh, Stanwood boy who's been involved in uh, ministry in Tacoma, and he comes every year and we enjoy his time. And then on the 4th of August, Gary Williams will be here, our own, one of our other elders, and he will also be leading us in communion on the 4th. So those are the three Sundays that Dan Halleck will be gone. So as I said, I really appreciate these opportunities to bring the word to you. And I was wondering, what, what topic should I cover? What passage would be my focus? And then it came to me. I just recently retired from the fire department. And in the fire department, they don't allow you to grow your beard and your hair. And so I don't know if I'm in a midlife crisis or if this is just rebellion, but I am enjoying not having to shave. But today I wanted to start a series of uh, sermons when I get the opportunity to preach, much like I did when we looked at all of the times in Scripture when a woman was considered uh, as barren. I wanted to do a series on the person of Moses. So we'll be reading this morning from Exodus 3. Exodus is the second book of the Bible from the front, very easy to find. You find Genesis, the very next one is Exodus. And so while you're looking for that, I'll just give you a little bit of background. Chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus are basically a whirlwind of events. Uh, Joseph, who's been the focus of the last half of, Mo of, uh, of Genesis, has now died. And a new generation of Hebrews are in Egypt, but they are slaves. And so the chapter explains pretty quickly how that happens. And then in chapter two, it tells us that there was this miraculous uh, preservation of a Hebrew child that was supposed to be exposed to and, and killed. And there's a miraculous uh, preservation of that child by the smartness and the quick acting of his sister, who when a Egyptian princess found the baby in, a, in the bushes, the rushes in a basket, she rushed out and said, hey, I know somebody who could take care of that child for you. Would you like that? And her mother was then paid to take care of her own child. Pretty quick thinking. Well, then that 
person becomes Moses, and the name Moses means rushes, drawn out of the rushes. So that's where he got his name. And we see that he grew up in Pharaoh's court. And again, this is very quick. In chapter 2, it then says he was out and about. He came across an Egyptian that was beating a Hebrew. And the passage says he looked this way. He looked that way. And when he didn't see anybody, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And then the very next day, he's out and about again, and he comes across two Hebrews that are going at it hammer and tongs. And he stops them and asks them why they are doing this to each other. And one tells him, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And it says in the passage that he quickly became, knew that the deed had become known and he fled for his life. So that happened about when he was 40. The passage continues and lets us know that he fled to the land of Midian. Do you know where Midian is? Well, take your Bible, and at the very back of the Bible, there's usually a picture or a map, a bunch of maps, and they are put in the, in the Bible usually by epochs of time. And so the one you want to look for is the one that says, Land of the Patriarchs. And so you can look there, and you see the Egypt is in one place, and then the Sinai Peninsula. There is the, what is the modern-day uh, Gulf of Aqaba on the east side of Saudi Arabia, and Midian is on the east side of that body of water. Why did he flee to Midian? You don't know? Neither do I. He just went there. It must be that God led him somehow. Well, when he arrives, he sits down near a well, which is a good thing to do in a desert. And while he's there, some female shepherdesses bring their flocks and they uncover the well and they start drawing water to fill the troughs so that their flocks can drink. And while they're in the process of doing this, some male shepherds come and just shove them out of the way and take over. And this doesn't sit very well with, with Moses. And he gets up and repeats the process. He pushes them out of the way and allows the shepherdesses to continue and finish what they were doing. Well, when they get home to their father, oh, by the way, it's interesting, isn't it? In this passage, the first name you hear for their father is Ruel, or Reuel, I guess would be a, the best way to pronounce it. And then just in chapter 3, he's referred to as Jethro. Isn't that interesting? And if you keep reading in Exodus, you'll find that he's also referred to as Hobab. So this is very typical of scripture from this era, where lists of genealogies will occasionally skip a person and list a grandson. And this is considered very normal. He is technically a son of that person. Now, in this case, I don't think that Reuel is one person and Jethro another. I think these are just different names for the same person and that the first readers and hearers knew that and this didn't bother them at all. Well, anyway, when they get home, their father expresses some displeasure that they did not invite him to their home to share a meal with them. So apparently they went and found him and brought him into the house and in just one verse, we're told that he agreed to work for them 
and that the oldest daughter was given to him as a wife. Talk about whirlwind engagements, huh? Well, as fast as all that went, he then spent the next 40 years being a shepherd. Now, I wanted you to see Moses' workplace. So I've got a picture that I, I took out of a textbook that I had back in college. That's not it. That's it. It's probably difficult to see, but uh, this picture is taken from the top of Mount Sinai. And it is looking, I think, north. And the reason I think that is if it was looking east, you'd probably see the body of water, the Gulf of Aqaba. It could be looking west, but I just took a guess. At any rate, this little white speck that you can see down in the lower right-hand corner is a monastery called St. Catherine's that's on Mount Sinai. And this blue speck you can see in the corner is a person who was uh, part of the team that took this picture. Now, does this look like the image you had in your mind when you heard that Moses was a shepherd? Like me, did you think of lush, green pastures? cool bodies of water, lots of shaded places to sit and relax while the sheep did their sheep thing. Boy, oh boy, what an environment to be a shepherd. It would be work. It would be lots of work. And then, imagine being 80 years old, trudging up and down these hills and through the wadis for 40 years, and no retirement plan either. But that does raise a question. Why is an 80-year-old man out shepherding sheep? Where are his sons? Now, it's possible that the flock is now so large that he must continue. It's also possible that the relationship at home may not be so great, and he decided that it would be better to be out with the sheep. There are a lot of questions that we bring to the text that we want to know, and we just can't make it tell us. But it is interesting that there is a description of this period of time somewhere else in Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 7, which if you know through our study of Acts, that this is Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. So I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 23 to 29. When he was 40 years old, it's referring to Moses, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now this gives us a little clearer picture of what had happened. Moses hadn't just casually strolled out to see what's happening with his people. He had gone to them with the idea in mind that God had appointed him to be a deliverer. And so his act of killing the Egyptian was really the first blow in his mind of a battle for freedom. But according to Stephen, they didn't understand, and they rejected him as their deliverer. You know from that passage in, in Acts that Stephen is tracing how many times God sent a deliverer and the people rejected him, culminating in his statement, you stiff-necked men and uncircumcised in heart, you have become the ones who have killed the Messiah. So now we begin to understand why Moses eagerly chose to take on the disguise of a lowly shepherd. He would be no one of consequence living in the land of Midian and word would probably never get back to Pharaoh of his location because he was in a foreign place. And so the early weeks of tension and worry that he had been followed would stretch to months and then finally to years until he could truly feel safe. But then that safety may have begun to feel like a prison. And at some time in that 40-year stretch, you can imagine that he finally concluded that this is what the rest of my life looks like. A self-appointed deliverer with no one to deliver but a bunch of sheep. Okay, now we come to Exodus chapter 3. So read with me verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I'd like to ask you this morning to remove your shoes. That's not a rhetorical request. I'd like you to remove your shoes in solidarity or commonality with Moses. Now, it says in the passage that the reason the bush was burning was to catch Moses' attention, and it happened. 
Now, from that picture I showed you, I would imagine that Moses would have been pretty thrilled just to see a bush, <laughs> let alone one that was burning. But here's a burning bush. And I like to think of him as having the qualities of the first fire investigator. Why is this happening? Why is it on fire and it's not burned up? I got to go see what's going on. So he turns aside to see that thing up close. And when he comes near, God tells him out of the bush, he calls him by name out of the bush twice. Now, if a bush started talking to you, would you have a little bit of trouble with that? Yeah, me too. And when we read the passage, it sounds like Moses went, oh, I'm here. It doesn't tell us that there may have been a period of time where Moses was fighting with fear and then confusion and then uncertainty. Did I really hear that? It may be why God called Moses' name twice. Called him once, and then when he finally came back after running away, he called his name again. We don't know. After his initial shock, he does respond by saying, here I am. So how are your feet? I know the floor is a little cold, and I'll try to get you back into your shoes rather quickly. The first thing God does is warn him not to come near to the bush. And we are very familiar with that statement. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, when I read this, I wondered about it greatly. And at first, I thought this was the only place in Scripture that it occurred. And then I discovered that, no, in Joshua chapter 5, when the people of Israel first cross the Jordan and are about to begin the conquest of this new holy land, Joshua is in, uh, encountered by a man with a drawn sword. And he asks the man, are you for us or are you against us? And then the man makes it very clear that he is the angel of the Lord come to fight for the people. And then he tells Joshua, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. But I wondered about it. Was this something new, something unusual? Because when we see Isaiah and his confrontation with the Lord, he says in Isaiah chapter 8, the, king, the, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and I saw his train fill the temple and it says nothing about him removing his shoes. Yet he's in the presence of a holy God. Ezekiel tells us about his vision of this chariot or thing with eyes moving everywhere it wanted on the plain and finally coming right before him. And nowhere in the passage in Ezekiel does it tell him that he is to remove his shoes. Then I started thinking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then I thought, you know, God is always referred to as God the Almighty. God, the Lord of hosts, the, the one who provides, the one who sees. And then I got out a concordance, and I looked it up. Did you know that the word holy does not appear anywhere in the book of Genesis? Not one time. Now, that was the New American Standard, 
It may be that it's in another version. I don't know. I just know that when I looked it up in the New American Standard Concordance, and for those of you that may not know, a concordance is a book that lists every word that's used in the Bible in alphabetical order by the passage that it could be found. And so as a book, mine is about that big and about that thick. And I imagine a flash drive would contain a part of it. Uh, I mean, that would, could be contained on part of a flash drive. So this is the first time that God reveals himself to man as holy. So that led me to ask myself, what is it about the holiness of God that was necessary for Moses to learn here? And as we read the passage, we have to ask ourselves, does this knowledge change him? Does it empower him? And the answer is no. Moses shows more reaction to the statement that God is the God of his fathers. It says he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But when it, it said he was to take off his shoes, there's almost no reaction. We can just assume that he just slipped them off, like many of you did just recently. In Moses' time, the gods of the nations were seen as powerful responsible for the various seasons, for harvests, for the various things that happen. They were vengeful and angry if they were not pleased with the sacrifice and service of their people. They also had in their minds that the gods were local, usually on the high places, but this god was only in this particular place. Nations went to war with one another and they claimed that it was their gods who were at the center of the conflict. And so the nation that won, that god was superior. And the truly superior nations, like Egypt, could claim that their ruler was a god. So when God told Moses, I am the god of your fathers, remember, Abraham was 500 years before Moses. Isaac was 300 years, and, Jake, and Joseph, two, or Jacob, 200 years before Moses. And so he responded in fear, afraid to look on a God that powerful and apparently not tied to the land that his fathers had lived in, but able to be present here. That was truly terrifying. When God told Moses to remove his sandals because the ground was holy, he replied, and did so, but what happened to his heart? Was he drawn closer to God? It doesn't appear so. For when God announced his plan, that he had heard the cries of his people and he was sending Moses to be the deliverer, he began to throw every excuse he could think of in the way. Well, well uh, who am I? And uh, well, who should I tell them is the one that sent me? They're not going to believe me. Um, and his last offense was, I'm not eloquent. I can hardly say anything. Basically, what he was saying is, God, you're wrong. Was barefoot Moses filled with power for God's mighty task? It doesn't appear so. Moses proceeded in his own power at first, and he has to learn firsthand 
what it is to trust in this holy God. And that leads me to ask, was barefoot Moses, the 80-year-old man, the best that God could do? And I think the answer is yes. And the reason I think that is because God willingly, lovingly, and purposefully uses sinful, weak, and fallible men and women to accomplish his purpose. Now, you might ask, is there any other kind? There isn't any other kind. It is part of God's plan. It's why he introduces his holiness at this point in history. It is the law that is going to be given to Moses. It will happen right in the same area that the burning bush is at the Mount Sinai, at the, the mountain of God. And the heart cry of the law is, you shall be holy, for I am holy, declares the Lord. So when the law is given, summed up by its Ten Commandments, clear standards are laid down. Right behavior is defined. The way uh, sacrifices should be given and done is instituted. And what's interesting is it does not take Israel long at all to learn that holiness is an impossible task for human beings. The people of Israel stumble and they fall and ultimately are judged for their woeful attempts to keep the, the law in their own strength. Until one day, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. Jesus was the only one who fulfilled the law, who lived an untarnished life, who in human flesh lived a perfect life before God. And then, who can understand this? Who can truly grasp it? He willingly laid down his life to be the sacrifice for sin. The perfect, the blameless sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. It all starts here with barefoot Moses. Weak, washed up in the eyes of the world, a fugitive, who has little value. God reaches down and touches him, and it all starts with God asking him to remove his shoes because he's in the presence of a holy God. A simple request with profound consequences. Okay, you can put your shoes back on, but how many of you were reluctant to remove your shoes? How many actually refused? See, I think that's a good reflection of the response of mankind to the very act of being asked to remove your shoes. Because you see, the world holds up this lie that you must be educated, beautiful, well-spoken, polished, smart, sexy, and near perfect before God can use you. And that is a deadly lie intended to paralyze you. Instead, God calls you to remove your shoes in a figurative way and to gaze upon his holiness. 
and there, confident in your Savior, you are forgiven and made whole. He wants you to remove what stands between you and his call on your life and to plant your feet firmly in his abounding mercy and grace and his empowerment for the service to which he has called you. Because he has called us, every one of us, to serve him, to act in his name, to bring a cup of cold water, to comfort the oppressed, to love the unlovely, to touch the untouchable. Christian, take off your shoes. You see, when you're stressed, the strong person trusts in his strength. The smart person trusts in his brains. The talented person in their giftedness. But it gets in the way. When you're stressed serving the Lord, you should turn to the Lord. When life kicks you around, you don't want to depend on your strength or your smarts or your looks or any of those things. You want to depend on the Lord. The Apostle Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christian, take off your shoes. Let the light of Christ shine on you. Glory in your weakness, for he is your power. He is your strength. Learn the power of abiding in Jesus. Jesus says it himself in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christian, take off your shoes. Abide in the presence of your loving and your holy God. Let nothing stand between you and the Savior. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your call on our lives. We are your people who have been made whole in the blood of Jesus, your Son. We know your gentle touch. We know your firm hand of guidance and love and support. How we long to have nothing between us and you. 
how we dare in your power to love in your name, to touch the untouchable, to seek those that are lost, to point broken-hearted people to Jesus, to bind up the wounded of this world. You've said in your scripture that you have so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. Our Father, today, as we remove our shoes in that figurative way, we want our hearts to yearn to be touched by your loving hand. Give us all that we need to serve you and never let us forget to abide in the vine. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. May each one of us know that we have been in your presence today. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.